Let me pray, and then we'll jump into that text. So, Father, thank you so much for your word, and Lord, thank you that um, that as we read it, your Bible, uh, the word says that that we can find joy in hearing it um, and obeying it, uh, that in that there is joy. And so, Father, I pray you'd give us that this morning as we look into your word. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, it's Christmas time now. Obviously, it's Advent, and so I was reading an article this week, and it was listing out the most popular Christmas songs, you know, the clickbait. I, was, I, I got baited. And uh, what struck me uh, as interesting about all of the, the top Christmas songs is that they're all old, all of them. Um, you know, the songs that are popular today are songs that have been popular for a very long time. And it really stuck out to me because the rest of the year, you know, most of us are looking to the new album. What's the new song? What's the latest song? You know, uh, you know what, what one just came out? What's the next hit that Taylor Swift wrote? Uh, but at Christmas time, we seem to put all that aside and we sing the old songs. And so this list that I'm going to tell you some of them, they come, this is a, not a random group of people. It's the American Society of Composers, Authors, and Publishers. And so obviously it's very credible. Uh, anything that has a long name is credible. Uh, the longer the name, the more credible the source. That's how that works, in case you're wondering. Uh, and so number one, you know what number one is? You won't guess it. I didn't guess it. Santa Claus is coming to town. Yeah, most of the top list, by the way, are uh, secular songs. Uh, number one, Santa Claus coming to town from 1934. He's been coming to town since 1934. Number two, the Christmas song, you know, Chestnuts Roasting on an Open Fire, uh, 1946 is when that one was written. Uh, number three, White Christmas, 1941. Um, it's not until number seven that you get out of the 1940s, actually. Uh, most of those songs were actually written for nostalgic reasons around World War II. Uh, but it's not until number seven you get out of uh, the 1940s with Jingle Bell Rock in 1958. Okay, some of you like that song. Um, and in case you're wondering, Mariah Carey does not hit the charts until number 28. Poor Mariah. I feel we should pray for her. She's only number 28. Uh, all I Want for Christmas uh, is You in 1994. That's when that song, but I guess 1994, it's considered vintage now. So uh, I don't know. That's a thing. So now here's what I think that tells us, though. This is what I was thinking about as I read this article, is that, you know, at this time of year, what we want are traditions. You know, we want the same old things we've always done. And at Christmas time, we don't really want new things. We want the old things. Um, you know, other than the presents under the tree, we want new presents. So don't give me your, you know, hand-me-downs. But in terms of traditions, we don't really want disruptions this time of year. We want everything to go the way that it's gone every year for the last however many years. You know, there's only one place that we want disruptions this time of year, and that's on the Hallmark Channel Christmas movies, because every movie is like the same disruption. You know, there's a, a girl, and she's, you know, a high-powered businesswoman, and she goes to some village somewhere, and she doesn't want anybody in her life, and then this whole trip to the place disrupts her life. We want that disruption. We love that disruption. Um, I've maybe seen one or two of them. Um, so that's the only one that we want. But at Christmas itself, you know, we, we really don't want a disruption. Not at Christmas time. And yet, the first Christmas, what, you know, the birth of Jesus into the world, that was a huge disruption. That was a major disruption. In fact, that disrupted the world's whole timeline. And it certainly was a disruption for Mary and Joseph, but also for the whole world. And so this Advent season, we're going to be looking at the disruption of Jesus entering into the world by asking two questions each week. Uh, we'll look at, we'll ask these same two questions. What child is this? Remember that song, What Child Is This? Uh, and then we'll ask, so what? What does, it, what does it matter? 
that this child was born. So what child is this? Who is Jesus Christ? We'll look at him as God. We'll look at him as man. We'll look at him as king. We'll look at him as savior. And then each week we'll ask, so what? What difference does that make in my own life? Because I actually think the best thing that can happen for you and I this Christmas time is for it to actually be disrupted. That your Christmas might actually be disrupted by Christ himself. And so I want to encourage us to use these next few weeks not only to think about your family traditions and peace on earth and food and presents and time off from work, but to take time over these next few weeks to think about Christ entering into the world and what difference that actually makes to your own life and to the whole world itself. And so the first thing we're looking at uh, to ask that question, what child is this, uh, in week one, is the, you know, the answer to that is just, this child is God. In fact, not only is he God, but verse 23, he is God with us. And so verse 23, that's, a, that's actually our outline today. Point one is God, point two is with, and point three is us, God with us. And what we'll see is that because he's God, he's full of power. But when he comes to be with us, he's full of meekness. And then because he came to be with us, we'll see that he is power and meekness combined. And so let's take a look. Point one, God with us. Uh, I used to work in this um, open office, uh, open concept office, and, uh, which meant like no private spaces to do concentrated work. Anybody ever work in one of those? Uh, and uh, so there are no like offices or anything like that. And, and we kept on getting interrupted by one another. And I was annoyed by this. So I started doing research on it. And what I learned is that if you get disrupted from concentration, uh, it takes 20 minutes to get back to that same level of concentration that you were at. And so um, I said to everyone else in the office, okay, there's a new rule here in the office. And that is, if you don't want to be disrupted from your work, then you either need to put something obnoxious on your desk so that people can see, or I don't want to be interrupted. So you know, some people put like a flag, or we had this really ugly mug that people would put out on their desk. Um, normal people, though, would just would, would put on headphones. And so the rule was, if you had headphones in, you don't interrupt. You don't disrupt the person because they're concentrating. That was the signal. But we had this one colleague who seemed to think that if you just you know, they had the headphones on or the thing out. If you just, just knocked on the desk, that superseded the headphones. And so that was the way around. So if you knock, then the headphones don't matter. And so this colleague of mine uh, would go around to your desk and she would just, you know, like she's knocking on a door, you know, you'd be concentrating, you'd be thinking, you'd be like, you know, she had this way of coming and knocking at exactly the worst possible time. You're deep into your task, you're trying to complete, you've almost cracked it, and then all of a sudden, right at your desk. Now, she was also a person who would wear um, not earplugs or headphones, but you know those things that you, like people that operate heavy machinery wear? Do you know those? She would wear those, and if you, because this is what I would do to her, I would go and knock on her desk, and she'd get very upset. Like, I have my, my, ear, my ear things on. Uh, At that point, you know, you're most concentrated. You have that, you're, you know, you're most wanting to like settle into what you're doing. This is exactly when God disrupts Mary and Joseph's life. Right at the time they want it the least. They have their plans. They're engaged. They have their dreams of what life and marriage and all of that will be like, you know, what their family will be like, all of those things. They have their dreams. And then here in Matthew, we get this story, and it comes from Joseph's perspective. By the way, it's just as jarring if you flip over to Luke and you read Mary's side of the story. It's just as jarring. 
But consider how this must have gone down for Joseph. He's got his life all planned. He's got his headphones on and gets the knock. It says in verse 18 that Mary is pledged to be married to Joseph, which means something like they're engaged. Except in Hebrew culture, it's much more formal than that. It's a, it's a betrothal. And to end a betrothal, it actually took more than just giving back the ring and calling off the caterers. To end a betrothal, betrothal actually required a, a divorce. But look again what it says, verse 18. This is how the birth of Jesus the Messiah came about. His mother Mary was pledged to be married to Joseph. But before they came together, in other words, before they were married and consummated it, she was found to be pregnant through the Holy Spirit. Now, this is a scandal. Now, think about this from Joseph's perspective. You know, he, he hasn't slept with her. That's what it says. They haven't been together yet. And so it can only mean one thing, that he's not the father. But verse 19 it says Joseph doesn't want to make things worse for Mary. And so he decides to divorce her quietly. And then verse 20, now an angel shows up and says, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary home as your wife because what is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. And so now he's between this rock and hard place. You know, this interruption, this disruption has come into his life because if he marries her, then everyone can count you know, everyone who can count, they can, they can count backwards, you know, how, how long Mary's been pregnant. You know, and so they're, they're either thinking, okay, Joseph and Mary slept together before they were married, which is a huge no-no in their culture, or it meant that Mary slept with someone else, which is a huge no-no in, I think, every culture. And either way, in their honor-shame society, they'd be shamed, they'd be socially excluded, they'd be rejected. You know, just think of Joseph trying to explain this to his family and friends. No, 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 it's, it's, it's not what you think. You know, it's a miracle. That God, through the Holy Spirit, he got her pregnant. And his friends would say, well, how do you know this? And then his response would be, well, you see, there's an angel. The angel told me, oh, an angel, uh-huh, sure. Mm-hmm. And this is the disruption of all disruptions into a person's life. You know, here's both Joseph and Mary who... The accounts of their lives lead us to believe that they're nothing but good and upstanding people with high integrity. And here they are in the midst of a scandal fit for only the best reality TV show. But what Joseph clearly sees uh, at first, it's, it's this massive disruption in his life. But as you read on, you see that it's, it's part of God's eternal plan. And Joseph actually gets on board with this. And if you're like me, as you read this text, you know, you want a lot more detail about Joseph, you know, about his state of mind, like what is he actually thinking and how did this all go down? You know, how did he actually explain it to his family? Did anyone disown him because of this? But we get none of that. And it's because Matthew, the author, he's not concerned with, with telling us about Joseph. That's not his main concern here. He's concerned with telling us about Jesus. And then look what it tells us about Jesus, verse 21. It says, she will give birth to a son, and you are to give him the name Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. And we'll come back to that uh, in a little bit. But for now, look at verse 22. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had said through the prophet. The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son, and they will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. And so that's it right there. That's the very heart of what Matthew wants to get across. This is the point, by the way, of the, the long genealogy in verses 1 to 17 that most of us skip over. This is the point that that was, is there to make. This is the point of why Jesus is conceived, not through sexual intercourse, but through a miracle by the Holy Spirit. 
So this truth right here is the foundational principle upon which the entire Bible stands, both Old and New Testaments. Without this statement in verse 23, the whole thing falls down. The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son, and they will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. And just think for a minute about what that's telling us. That the beginningless, all-powerful, all-knowing, utterly holy, completely wise, completely sovereign, unchanging, infinite, self-existing creator of the universe took on a human nature without the loss of his deity. So that Jesus, the son of Joseph of Nazareth, was both fully divine and fully human. That's what this is saying. And of anything that Christianity claims, this is actually the most staggering. It's the most staggering because everything else falls apart without this. This claim, it's not unique to this one verse in Matthew, by the way. The very same thing is stated in verse 1. If you look at Mark's gospel, very, the very first thing it says in Mark's gospel is that Jesus is the Son of God. That's in verse 1. It's in Luke's gospel. It's in John's gospel. It's stated time and time again all throughout the New Testament. And so this particular truth that Jesus Christ is fully God, fully man, that he is God with us, is the mountain spring that sets the river flowing for every truth claim of Christianity. Nothing about Christianity makes any sense without this claim that Jesus Christ is God with us. And not only that, but if it's true, if it's true, then that truth has to cause a massive disruption to your life. Because if that statement is true, then, it, then you have to center your entire life around him. Because think about what you're doing if you don't. If you don't center your life around God with us, the God who came, you're rejecting him. You're rejecting God himself. And so Jesus Christ coming into the world, it's a disruption for everyone. Wherever Jesus went, you see him causing disruption into people's lives. Wherever he goes, he challenges old patterns. He sends people off in new directions. And so Jesus, wherever he goes, he provokes a reaction. Some meet him, and they're so angry they try to kill him. Others are so terrified, they tell him to go away. And then others, rather than rejecting the disruption of Jesus' intro, they they accept him. They fall down and they worship him. Those are your only three responses. You try and kill him. You try and tell him to go away. Or you fall down and you worship him. And my hope is that this Christmas season, that this will be a good disruption for you. But if you're a Christian... This time of year, you'll take stock of your life and you'll actually invite Jesus to disrupt anything in your life that needs to be disrupted. Any part of your life that isn't centered around him, that you'd actually invite him to come in and change you, to disrupt you. And my hope for anyone who's not a Christian is that this Christmas season would be that major disruption into your life as well. That the truth here in verse 23 of God with us, that 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 truth would finally land for you. Because this is point two. Look with me at the second word of that statement, with. It's God with us. And what does it mean that God is with us? You know, everywhere else in the Bible, when God shows up, it's terrifying. You see his power. You know, when God appeared to Abraham, there's this crazy story where he tells him to cut some animals in half, and then God visibly shows up as a a smoking fire pot with a flaming torch. That's how he represented himself. It's terrifying. 
Uh, to Moses and to, the, to Israel, he's a pillar of fire moving through the land. To Elijah, the prophets of Baal, he's a consuming fire that comes down and, and destroys the whole altar. And so there's always this picture of something deadly to the touch, something that if you came near it, it would consume you. And yet, when God and Jesus comes to be with us, he comes as a soft-to-the-touch baby. Think of the softness of a baby's skin. He comes as a helpless baby, unable to do anything more than just wiggle around and, and make cute noises and crying noises. A baby that needs to be fed and changed and bathed and carried and cuddled. A baby that you can only, you can only deal with it gently. Tenderly, softly, otherwise you'd do great harm. Why does God come that way? Why come as a weak, needy baby? It's the meekness. Meekness. To be meek is to be gentle, it's to be humble, it's to be submissive. And that's precisely why Jesus came. Look back at verse 21. She will give birth to a son and you are to give him the name Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. And so God came to earth not to bring judgment, but to bear it, to pay the penalty for our sins, to disrupt the barrier between humanity and God. He did it for one very specific reason, so that he can be eternally with us. Jesus Christ is, is God on earth so that he can be he can, be, he can be with us for eternity. The incarnation, it didn't happen just so that we can know the truth that God exists. The incarnation happened so that the beginningless, all-powerful, all-knowing, completely holy, utterly wise, completely sovereign, unchanging, infinite, self-existing creator of the universe can be with us and we with him. Just think about the lengths to which people are willing to go to be with their loved ones on Christmas. I mean, especially if you're from L.A. Because think about how hard it is just to get out of the city this time of year. Uh, they show the same image on the news every year. I think they call it the four or five candy cane. And this is actually for Thanksgiving, so this is just a few days ago. And it's going to be the same right before Christmas. And just think of the lengths that we go through to be with our family, to be with people on Christmas. We'll sit in that traffic. We'll go to LAX and we'll deal with it. Now, isn't, think about that. Isn't that just the annual tangible picture of God with us? That the fact that, that we're willing to go to such lengths to be with the people who we love on Christmas, isn't that just an annual picture it's a better picture than presence under the tree, that tra you know, traversing the void, traveling the distance, leaving home to be with a bunch of people who, by the way, have hurt you, who've wronged you, who've challenged you, who've rejected you, people who you know all their secrets. We traverse that, <laughs> and we do it anyway. Why? Because we love them. And don't you see that every time you do that, every time you travel on Christmas, through the void, through the darkness, every time you do that, you're being like God. 
And if you can understand that, then you can understand just a little bit of how God feels towards you. Because just like you know your family, he knows you. He knows all the ways you've rejected him, all the ways you've wronged him, hurt him, all the things you've done and said to others, the ways you've wronged others. And yet he transcends across the void between you and him anyway. This is love. Because not only was Jesus being born on earth a disruption to Mary and Joseph and a disruption to you and I, but it was a disruption to God himself, one that he chose. And we'll talk more about this next week, but what the Bible actually tells us is that when God the Son came in the flesh and the person of Jesus, he didn't give up any of his deity. He was still fully God. But what it does say is he gave up his glory. In other words, he became vulnerable and ordinary. He lost his beauty. And Isaiah says that he had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him, that we should desire him. He gave up his comfort. Jesus himself said that he had no home of his own, nowhere to lay his own head. And so not only did he give that up, but he, he suffered. The God who for all of eternity, had, who had never lacked anything, never felt any physical pain, had only been worshipped and loved, he came to be with us where he was hungry and thirsty and tired, where he was beaten, where he was scorned, where he was mocked, where he was hated. And why does he do all of that? Well, again, verse 21, to save his people from their sins. And this is point three, God with us. And so we've seen that in Jesus Christ, uh, that Jesus Christ is God, and that speaks to his power. We've seen that he is God with, and that speaks to his meekness. And now, thirdly, we see that he is God with us, and that speaks to his power and meekness combined. You know, some of the worst disruptions that we have in life, they, they actually have to do with being cut off. You know, the power is out. You know, tragedy of all tragedies, the internet went down. We're cut off. The road is closed. We're out of gas. The flight is canceled late at night. There's no more flights out. Uh, years ago, I had this car. It's kind of funny because it was kind of a nice car, but the gas gauge broke on it. And so I had to do this thing where Nelson's laughing because it's probably how this car is, but <laughs> it's the same issue. Mine was a Honda, too. Um, sorry, Honda, if you're listening to this. And the gas gauge broke, and so what I would have to do is I knew that I could get about 300 miles out of a tank of gas, and so I'd have to reset the trip thing every time. But sometimes you'd forget, and I didn't know where it was when I filled up the last time, and so you'd think, oh, I could probably get a few more miles out of this, and then you'd be driving, and it'd always be in the middle of nowhere, and the car would run out of gas. And this happened so many times. I had a friend who was pretty much on call, and he, I would call him and be like, you out of gas? Yeah. And he'd take his little gas tank and come and fill me up and get me on the road. I was powerless in that. I could, there's nothing I could do. In all of these situations, you know, the power goes out, the flight is canceled. All these things where you're cut off, you're powerless. You have no power. You, you have only meekness. And so when the Bible says something like we, we need to be saved from our sins, like it does in verse 21, what it's saying is that you and I are cut off. That our connection with God is so disrupted by our sin that we have no power in ourselves to do anything about it. And so we need saving. And so just like every time I ran out of gas in that car, I needed saving, we need saving from our sins. 
And this is the good news of Christmas, that not only did God enter into the world in the person of Jesus, but he actually came to save us from our sins. But then think about how how did he do that? How did he save his people from their sins? Well, Jesus Christ, God himself, he experiences utter disruption. He's cut off. It actually says in the Bible that he's cut off from the land of the living. And of course, the greatest display of his meekness was as he was arrested and put on trial and sentenced to death and then died an excruciating death and he's laid in a tomb, totally cut off. He experienced the disruption of the cross through his meekness and yet, and yet in the midst of all that, remember we said he's fully God, he, he has his power. He is God himself, the omnipotent, sovereign, authoritative creator who is the very word that spoke everything into being. And when he's asked to display his power by Pilate, the Roman governor, he's silent. He's meek. He's submissive to this death. And then when he's mocked by the crowd and the people said to him, hey, if you're really God, then just do a miracle and come down off the cross. Could he have done that? Of course he could have done that. He he just raised someone from the dead recently. Of course he could come down off a cross. And yet he chooses to stay there. Why? With his infinite power, he chooses meekness. He chooses to be weak. Why? It's because his death and his resurrection from the dead is the most glorious display of his self-giving love. That he chose to use his infinite power to save others rather than himself. Think about that. The request from Pilate was for Jesus to do what? To save himself. He's like, hey, defend yourself. I'll let you go. But he doesn't use his power to do that. The jeers from the crowd around him as he's on the cross were, save yourself. And he had the power to do so, and yet he chooses to to use his power to do what verse 21 says, to save his people from their sins. So the best thing that can happen to you and I this Christmas season, it's not to revel in our traditions or to get a certain gift. The best thing that can happen in our lives this Christmas time is for it to be disrupted by that truth. For God to so come into our lives that we would center our whole lives around him. Because, by the way, did you notice what Joseph was asked to do? Back in verse 21, this is amazing. The angel who appeared to Joseph, said in verse 21, she'll give birth to a son, and you are to give him the name Jesus. That seems innocuous enough. You know, maybe I'll call Clinton Hannah later today, and I'll suggest a name. Seems innocuous enough. Of course, they're not going to take that name. You know, ask any parent. They're not going to, they want to name their own child. They don't want someone else to name them. And even more so, in a patriarchal culture like the one that, that Joseph lived in, it was the father's absolute right to name the child. You know, a father had complete rights over his children, and the naming was a sign of of authority, control, headship over the family. But the angel comes and takes that away. By refusing to let Joseph name his own child, the angel's saying, if Jesus is in your life, then you don't have authority over him. He has authority over you. This child is God, and, and he doesn't belong to you, you belong to him. And I would guess that this idea of God disrupting your life 
Maybe that makes you feel a little bit uncomfortable. And if it does, then you're like me. Because if you're like me, then, then you want control. And so to give that control away to someone else is terrifying. In other words, we want the naming rights. We want Jesus to be on our terms. But the idea behind what the angel is saying is if Jesus comes into your life, then, then you don't control him, he controls you. Put that another way, Jesus doesn't center his life around you, you center your life around him. Now here's what this looks like. It means that when you come to Christ, you, you have to drop the conditions. It means dropping the word if. And so when you center your life around Jesus, it means you give up the right to say, well, I'll obey you, Jesus, if you do this. I'll do that if you'll do that. And as soon as you say that word if, it's not obedience. Essentially what you're saying to God is, you're my advisor, but not my Lord. I'm open to your suggestions for my life, but if it's too hard, if it's too disruptive, if it's too far off my own plans, then thanks for the suggestion that I'll take it from here. Are you trying to name him, to control him, to have authority over him, to lead him? Are you willing to let Jesus lead you, to center your whole life around him? That'd be the best disruption of all, to be led day by day by God himself. Now, one last thing before we finish, and you can count this as part of the sermon if you want, but just a, a challenge to you uh, as your pastor. Um, there'll be plenty of people you know who need the disruption of Jesus in their life. Uh, there'll be plenty of people. Uh, it could be a neighbor, it could be a friend, it could be a family member, it could be a coworker. And one of the easiest ways to bring that disruption into their life is uh, the, some of the things that we're doing here at Christmas. Um, and so, you know, I talked about those flyers earlier. Um, maybe the disruption God's giving to you is to ask somebody, to invite somebody. Um, but maybe that's the disruption that you need and certainly a disruption that others need. And maybe it's not to one of our events, but maybe it's just this time of year. Maybe God's challenging you to talk to somebody about Christ and about why we celebrate Christmas. Uh, but there'll be plenty of people who you know who need that disruption in their life. And so this is my challenge to you as your pastor Embrace that disruption. Embrace that in your own life and bring it into the life of somebody who needs it. It's the best time of year to do that. Let me pray. Our Father, we thank you for disrupting this world, for coming into the world and uh, changing absolutely everything about it, Lord. Um, the whole world changed because Jesus was born. Even the, the, the kind of culture that we live in today is a result of Jesus being born into the world. And so, Father, we say thank you for that. Thank you for that disruption. Thank you for the disruption of the cross. Thank you for the disruption of the good news of the gospel. And, Lord, I pray that for each one of us this year uh, that, that you would disrupt us in some way, some area of our lives where we're not centered around you, Lord. Would you point that out to each one of us? And Lord, may this Christmas be uh, the, the year that, that we finally are free of something. We finally gave up control of something. 
And we ask it all in Jesus' name. Amen.